spoiler warning ahead for anybody about to listen to this episode that has never seen the finale of The Sopranos, which aired about 15 years ago, by the way, uh, and the finale of Game of Thrones. I just want to throw it out there. I want to say like around the 30, 40 minute mark of the episode, we talk about uh, endings of shows that uh, we loved but didn't like the endings. Well, kind of, sort of. Yeah, just want to let everybody know that ahead of time. And you know what? You know what? Well, I'm here. Well, I'm here. Let me uh, just tease the episode today. Jamie Reborn is a writer, director, producer, and actor out of Fort Worth, Texas. He's bounced around out west a lot, coming up and working on films for pretty much all his life. Started out as a stand-up comic as well and produced a documentary on pretty much the craft of stand-up comedy. I'm not going to lie. I haven't seen that one yet, but uh, it's definitely on my to-do list. But today on the show, uh, he's here to plug a film that he has bouncing around on the festival circuit right now, and you may see streaming soon, called Write It Black. I caught the film via a screener from Jamie. Thank you for that, by the way, man. Uh, And so by the time I had done this interview, I had still not seen the film. So after the fact, I caught it. And this this film is everything I wanted it to be, just reading off the synopsis alone. Uh, which I'll read to you right now. Led by Maddie, a naive idealist, a group of writers in the alternative content department of WYTE, which if you sound it out, <laughs> it's called Whitey. <laughs> Productions have 24 hours to come up with project ideas to submit for consideration by studio management. I'm reading that off of IMDb. Uh, yeah, this movie has great satire in it. And Jamie, when he talks about it, he doesn't talk about it like, uh, eh, you know, this is me trying to be funny. He has a lot of intellectual feelings towards the film and the messages that it tries to convey with diversity on screen and whatnot, something that is being championed a lot in the industry. But you never know who's trying to really just check a box with having multiple different ethnicities and different backgrounds on screen. And... I think the message Jamie tries to convey is absolutely incredible while still being really funny. Uh, So keep an eye out for Write It Black. It's going to be bouncing around maybe sometime next year. Hopefully. I hope. I really do hope because I really enjoyed it. Anyway, here's my chat with Jamie. Welcome to the basement. Welcome to Tyler Geist's Basement. Happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Tyler. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you reaching out to me with such a cool little trailer footage that you sent me for your upcoming, uh, or is it, are you still in post or is it, is it out? Write it black. Uh, I have, I have submitted it. I have submitted it to some film festivals, so we are ready to go. Nice, dude. Nice. That is, um, well, let me just, let me just, we'll, we'll, um, We'll do a tease for it and we'll talk about it a little later in the show. But let me just say, like, when you okay. reached out to me and you're like, hey, you know, I heard you have a podcast, but can you j- just check this out? And like, I-, I will be completely blunt. Sometimes people reach out to me and I kind of like there's that little bit of weariness to it. Like, no lie, where I'm just like, uh, I don't know. Like, is this is it? You know, you never know what you're going to get. 
And what you sent me was one of like the funniest things I've seen maybe this year. Um, if that's well, like, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, it. like it was so unexpected. I love the vibe you went for, for like, there's so much, I, I get the vibe that it feels very satire too. Um, right. And you right. know, I feel like there's kind of, I, I haven't seen the film yet. I look forward to hopefully seeing the film at some point down the road. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of people that have come on the show that I feel like I've talked about maybe some themes that are maybe mentioned in it. So if you want to just off the bat, like do a little elevator. I'd usually put filmmakers on the spot and say the word elevator pitch and it gets them nervous. Don't be nervous. doesn't need to be perfect, but um, like what, what's, what's going on with this thing. Okay. So write it black is a, a film about diversity uh, or lack thereof in Hollywood. Yeah. It's uh there's a lot of uh, satirical uh, 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 jokes in there. And basically um, it kind of um, takes a look at why, we don't see um, more diversity, and uh, the 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 group of writers in this project, they in the film, they work in what's called the alternative content department. And so, basically, the ma the major studio, you know, they work in the alternative content department of the major studio. And so, the alter and the major studio heads are kind of always kicking back, you know, their yeah. stuff. So it's like they're in a, you know, in a, in a dead end in a dead end spot where none of their 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 ideas get taken seriously. Yeah. It <laughs> It just, I feel like, I don't know. I really look forward to seeing it. Kind of had a cool, um, I don't know if this is what you're going for, but uh mockumentary feel at times, at least from the footage a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a lot. I'm hearing, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't a big, I never really watched much of The Office, but some people have told me that it's kind of got that kind of vibe to it yeah. as well, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it um, I, I put a lot of different, uh, you know, there's 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 conversations about, you know, politics, there's conversations about race, there's conversations about religion, um, uh, gender. And basically, you know, kind of everybody gets a turn at, you know, giving their perspective, you know, in the film. And so, you know, so they're all sitting around, you know, talking about stories. One person pitches it from their perspective, from, you know, from their background. And then and then typically the other people then try to change it. You know, somebody has a, a, an idea, then somebody else puts their kind of take to it based on, you know, their experiences. So cool, man. Um, I want to talk about that a little more, but I just was doing some some research on you leading up to when we we're going to cut this episode. And uh, you have quite a very intriguing up, you know, just kind of career path, uh, I, I, I think, personally. Um, first thing I want to mention is while I was doing a little research, I saw a couple years ago on YouTube, you cut a, like, it was, I, I haven't seen all of it, uh, or I haven't fully watched it, you know, with having a baby right now, I, I get my information or my entertainment in spurts. And um, with uh, Mike Mess Messier, I believe. Yes. You guys did yes. like a two hour, like YouTube thing, uh, you know, kind of about the conversation about race in America at the time. And I, I, I just, I don't really have a question here. I just thought like you guys had a really great conversation and it was very insightful. And I just, I guess I just kind of wanted to commend you guys for that. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Mike uh, actually was in, he played Dickie yeah. in Ride It Black and Mike has been in a lot of films. He plays Sybil Shepherd's son in a film. There was another film he was in. He has a scene with, uh, get this, he has a scene in the film with Elizabeth Shue and Meryl Streep in the same scene where they're they're talking to him. What movie is this? 
You know, I have to look it up. I, I don't know. Uh, but Mike has been in a number of films. Um, he's from the Rhode Island area. Yeah. And, I, uh, no, I'm from Massachusetts. I don't know him personally, but like he, I, I'm a, I am aware of him. Like I know him and uh, Tommy Danucci have a little YouTube live uh, cast about our podcast live vidcast thing about um yeah uh, making movies and stuff. So I think I think that may have coincided with the um with the uh with the with the killing of George Floyd. Probably, uh, yeah. And so we were talking, you know, talking about that. I, I taught at the collegiate level for several years. Mm -hmm. I finished my second PhD last uh, last year. So um, I congratulations um, on that. That was one of my uh, that was one of my talking points. I saw you have like two doctorates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one is in, in management of information systems technology and one is in learning technology. And I, I just applied for my third. Actually, hopefully I get in. Incredible. I mean, I think you're the probably most established guy ever to come on this show. Well, that's not to knock any other guests, but I don't think I've had a, anybody with two doctorates on here, but um, well, let's like, take me back to the beginning. Uh, you grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. I believe you're, are you back there still living there? Yeah. I moved back uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, I, I lived in Las Vegas for several years. Um, I, I, I graduated from high school and then I went into the army um, back in those days, they had like a two-year college fund uh, program. Mm -hmm. So I uh, went to um, college, did my two years, and then I started out as a theater major at Fresno State. Um, Donald Sutherland had a film called The Puppet Masters that was filmed around that time in the early to mid-90s. And uh, I had just gotten out of the Army. And so they were looking for some extras as soldiers. Well, I submitted my actual army pictures but i didn't get cast what the so fuck? <laughs> yeah so so then they 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 came out with another round of uh you know they needed some more soldiers. they, they were doing some scene and I, I don't think i've ever actually seen the movie but they needed you know they needed some more soldiers later on a few weeks later or whatever so i submitted again and i didn't get accepted so i remember i went to my professor and he's still teaching there at fresno state uh professor thomas wood ellison he actually was in right at black so this is a good story I went to him and said, hey, I'm leaving the theater department. And he's like, no, no, don't don't do that. You're not you know, you're not giving it enough time. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be an actor because, hey, you know, if they don't want me and I'm a real soldier or was a real soldier and, and they rejected me, then this acting thing is not going to work. So uh, I switched to the business department the next semester and eventually graduated with a business law degree from Fresno State. But uh, I wound up getting into I.T., you know, went back to school and you know, got, you know, a master's degree in information systems and a few others. Um, I was kind of a lifelong student. I had, you know, a lot of benefits from the military. So I, um, I actually have eight degrees, including two doctorates. But I, um, I was in Vegas working as the IT administrator for the state teachers union. And in Vegas, I was running into people who needed websites for different shows that they were doing. People needed apps made and stuff like that. So I kind of back ended into the film industry that way because I was building websites for films. And so I was hanging out on some of the sets and whatnot and then started getting a few roles. And then I helped to produce a few films. And once I realized what a producer was and how you kind of get, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you get ripped off. I decided at that point to start doing my own films. And that's kind of where, you know, kind of where I am now. I started yeah, producing film projects. Yeah. Uh, for the record, the, um, the, 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 
the puppet master movies you're talking about it's not those uh that's what i'm saying this for the audience because i actually got confused one time i thought donald sutherland was in those those b movies about the killer puppets puppet master Ah, films yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) it's not those but hey those movies are kind of cool too i've had the producer of that on the show before charles band um but uh they wow they rejected you and you actually you were actually in the military that's yeah yeah they they actually and i think one of the actresses that was in my in the theater department i think she was like a production assistant on that but i didn't know that at the time mm-hmm. i was told that after i i think i had a, a conversation in the, in the last year with dr um with uh, with professor ellis and he, he was telling me about that and professor ellis he plays uh isaiah he plays my supervisor in the film so in that trailer He's the one that I'm going into the office and talking to or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I, and I, and that was really cool that he, dis, that he agreed to be in the film w- uh, with me. It was like coming, you know, it was coming full circle and I really, really appreciated it. It was, a, it was a very, very good project and I'm glad that I did it. Yeah. Cool. man. Uh, I want to dive in to your stand-up comedy career. Cause we were talking right before I hit record and you did a you've done a documentary about being a stand-up comic and whatnot. Who were your stand-up comic gods? Like, you know, a lot of people kind of have like the two or three, and a lot of people, it's a lot of the same ones, your priors, your Carlins. Uh, who are yours? Yeah. And uh I, you know, I I came up in that era. So yeah, the biggest influence that, you know, the person that wanted me to, that I that I wanted to to kind of be like and be like you know become an actor because of was eddie murphy you know um but eddie murphy probably the primary one but it, it would not be complete without george carlin and richard pryor and even arsenio hall um george carlin was the first person that i recognized as a what's called a stand-up comic he's the first person that i knew of that of that term he used to be on the Tony Orlando show, Tony Orlando and Dawn show, or 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 Captain and Tania, one of those. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, think, yeah. yeah. We don't, yeah. we don't, we don't, we don't really do those shows anymore. But 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 it was they were real popular when I was a kid, and so uh, he was on that show. And then he and Richard Pryor were in Car Wash together. Richard Pryor, I didn't really know him as a stand-up until later because Richard Pryor's stuff wasn't for kids. Now, when Eddie Murphy came out, he was on regular TV. You know, he's on Saturday Night Live, but Richard Pryor's stand up wasn't, you know, kid friendly. So I I knew Richard as an actor on TV Mm -hmm. and then, you know, was able to see his stuff later. Like we I was old enough to remember the albums that people don't even use anymore. But like Richard had, you know, these 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 stand up comedy albums, they were hilarious and the adults would listen to him. So then, you know, when they weren't paying attention, you know, you'd grab the album, share it with your friends and whatnot. But um, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor. And George Carlin, um, you know, and even Arsenio Hall, because Arsenio Hall was people don't remember. Some people don't remember this, but he was on the Solid Gold show like in the late 70s, early 80s. He was doing stand up, you know, on there. Um, and um, they were heavy influences for me to do stand up. But I uh, I think I was more preoccupied with trying to be rich and famous instead of just having fun when I was a kid. And so, you know, uh I, I I changed as I got older, but um, I was more natural with it, you know, as I got older, mm-hmm. but, you know, but I haven't done stand up in a while, but I may, 
I, I may do a movie about a guy who's doing stand up, like an actual um, scripted film. Interesting. Yeah, I grew up. I, I'd have to say it's. I mean, I'm a white kid from the suburbs, but I have. I had a father who grew up in the '70s and late '60s into the '70s, and probably may have not should have not introduced me to Richard Pryor and George Carlin at <laughs> age eight. So I'm going to elementary school quoting Carlin and nobody thinks it's funny. And I think it's just genius. And I, especially, I think I told the Richard Pryor story about him catching on fire, freebasing on cocaine, the, the famous, that famous bit. Right. And I think I got, I, I want to say, I think I got sent to the principal's office a few times <laughs> and like my, I, or something happened. They called my parents and I remember my dad just being like, look, I know these guys are hilarious. You know, this is an art form. I mean, I'm not in stand-up comedy at all, but I respect the hell out of people who do it because I don't know if I could ever get up on stage and try to make people laugh, even though a lot of people tell me I should give it a shot. Um, but I just worship the craft so much. And I especially like it when a comic gets on stage and it's almost like it's not too routine. Here's the build up to a joke. Here's a punchline kind of thing. And I feel like, you know, those two gods of comedy crafted such a great way of just telling stories. You know, I don't know if I'm really kind no, of, no, I, your language, I, got but, I got it. You know, and uh, we, we have, um, we are, we, I mean, I, I believe society is constantly in, in transition, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that. True, true. And um, also, we're, we, we've had this conversation, I'm sure you've heard it, you know, uh, where we're talking about what's funny and, you know, what's offensive, but that continues to change, right? Every yeah. different era is going to have something that changes. Like, for instance, um, and I'll just say this and I'll be respectful to anybody uh, listening to this. You take like... Um, uh the the r word when it comes to mental health right okay okay so now if you say that word to cert to some people they'll get really offended and say hey you shouldn't say that word but that word the r word as it refers to mental health that word was supposed to be the new sanitized word for when idiot was the word you couldn't say yeah you know and so it constantly it constantly changes and so today, what is um, acceptable might be a pejorative tomorrow. And that's just kind of the way that it is. And so a lot of things that we say and do, you take um, uh, the the Honeymooners, you know, the television show with Jackie Gleason uh, and Audrey Meadows. OK, he's saying pow to the moon, Alice. Well, you know, that probably wouldn't go over today. You know, <laughs> that, 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 that probably would not be. And even with uh, when I was a child. Three's comedy, I'm mean, sorry, Three's Company was a comedy that was one of the funniest shows on television. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the jokes were centered around um, uh, John Ritter's character, Jack Tripper, being gay. And so yeah. there was a lot of there was a lot of jokes that that. Even though some people probably or many people probably thought they were um, not funny back then, as far as like they, maybe they have been maybe they were insensitive today. A lot of the jokes where they're attacking Jack for being gay, they certainly probably would not go over today, you yeah. know. And so, and then like in some of the humor, even on some of those shows, is lost. Like um, with uh, the idea that you'd have to be gay to get approval to live in an apartment with two women. I didn't even know as a child 
that that was an issue. The fact that he was living with two women. I didn't I didn't really catch that as a kid, you know. So yeah. So things so things change with the jokes, you know. Do you think? Because I sense it now, um, with a pushback of what you know for years everybody was offended by this offended by that kind of thing do you sense a pushback kind of happening right now because I, I feel like i personally do because there's a lot of things maybe three years ago i was like yeah I, you know that that's offensive um and now it's just kind of like eh, wait let's talk about this kind of thing like where yeah. do you stand on something like that well i i personally as an as an educator i think it's constantly changing we just don't always see it that way I think that 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 a joke today, there's a possibility that it might not be funny tomorrow. You know, like in in the 1950s, and you know, and even some in 60s and 40s, some of the shows that had black people on them now they're considered very very offensive. But some of them were extremely popular back in those days. Yeah. And you know, and then there's the argument. Well, you know, nobody intended harm, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's I think it's constantly changing. One of the jokes I have now, you have a new baby and uh, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. So one of the jokes that I've been talking about is uh, it's like the only people that are safe to talk about now is grandparents because grandparents are the biggest hypocrites on the planet right now. And my joke is that they treat the, the grandchildren totally different than they treat the kids. You know, and so a lot of the, the 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 things that you know you weren't allowed to do, or the things that your mom and dad might say to you now with the grandkids, it's like, oh, you know, like you had to work for money, maybe for chores or whatever. But grandkids just get money when 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 uh, when the grandparents come over. So, yeah. But the comedy and the you know is constantly changing. But even words in our society, like um, uh. The word cowboy, for instance, it's it's a joke. I'm, I'm sorry. It's a word that used to be associated and people don't realize this, but it was associated with. Um, um, it was associated with the black cowboys. OK, so white cowboys would be called cow hands, you know, and so the word itself was a pejorative for a long time. And so then over time, it changed, you know, and now, you know, now we use it in movies like it's nothing but but. You know, things change. So yeah. I think that the humor is going to const- it's going to always constantly change. The things that we think are funny today, you know, may not be funny today. We're even we're even we're even grabbing people's tweets and, uh, and, and Twitter hasn't even been out that long. But we're grabbing people's tweets from five, 10 years ago and a joke that they made that was popular or whatever that was funny now is not so funny anymore. So cost Kevin Hart the hosting job at uh, the Oscars. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, well, no, that that's that's a lot of valid points. Uh, but I, before I hit record, we started talking about your documentary and then I had to stop you. Cause I was like, save it for the episode. Cause I, okay. I could tell you yeah. were going somewhere, Yeah. but you made, I, I, again, I haven't seen it. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to look into seeing it down the road at some point, but you made a documentary about, it was like four or five different comics who are also actors. Uh, talk to me about it. Okay. So, uh, I, uh, I have not performed at the uh, the improv in Los in Los uh, Angeles, but I went there. Uh, I, I would go there, and I knew a few comics there, and I met Guy um, a few times. We'd bump into each other, and you know, we weren't like you know, f- you know, friends or anything, but we would talk and chit chat. And so, when I had the idea to do the uh, the documentary, I asked a number of comics, got turned down by a few people. Um, Paul Mooney was actually supposed to do uh you know we kept 
we kept miscommunicating and he was supposed to do the documentary, uh, mm -hmm. Surely You Jest. And he was also supposed to do Write It Black. He was supposed to play a lead in Write It Black. Um, but uh, we didn't get everything settled in time. Well, I asked Guy Tory to be a part of it. And he's been in several films. He's been in Life and uh, with Eddie Murphy. Um, yeah. He wrote, he wrote, he was a, uh, uh, he wrote a couple of, a couple episodes on the Martin Lawrence show. Um, so he agreed to do it. And um, uh, he had a buddy, uh, Steve White. Steve White used to do the radio show with D.L. Hughley. So he does stand up. And uh, I don't know if they're still doing that show or not. I haven't seen Steve in, in a little while. And then uh, Flynn Beck, she was a Facebook friend. I saw she posted something on stand up. Um, that she did stand up. And so I started, you know, looking at some stuff that she did. She was a guest host for the Regis Philbin show after Kathy Lee Gifford left. She was one of the, the replacement hosts. Interesting. Once. And uh, and then um, there was another uh, a comic that I would go to see, and he was off in, the, um, in it as well. And I think I did some stand up in it. And uh, we might have cut a few people for time or whatever, but I really enjoyed it. It, it you know, gave me an idea of how to produce and you know how to put the stuff together so i really really enjoyed it. it was it was a love letter um you know to my career uh as a stand-up comic nice dude is it is it uh is, is it out or is it available yeah it is out it was on amazon i'm gonna put it back up that was another thing like in trying to find uh distributors um i had an issue with the distributor uh i wasn't getting the um I was supposed to get like monthly information, you know, or I'm sorry, you know, quarterly information about the project that wasn't happening. So mm -hmm. I took it down, but I'm going to put it back up and just do it myself. Um, but yeah, but don't worry. I'll, I'll we'll, after the show, I'll, I'll make sure you have access to see it. So we'll take care of that. Thanks, man. <laughs> no, I definitely look forward to it. I love, I love, I love documentaries about comedians. Um, it, it, there's always a lot of cool, insightful behind the scenes information about that that craft like i said i've just admire the hell out of stand-up comics and you were you were asking about who our who uh who who my uh you know the the who my uh, role models were yeah. in well i i asked that question of all of the um uh, of the comics and i asked them like you know what is um what is off limits what isn't off limits and one of the things that i touched upon too was that um i noticed that in the past and I'm a huge stand-up comic guy, although I wasn't like extremely successful as a stand-up comic. I mean, nobody knows me. I know them. Um, and um, there was a um, a question that I was asking about, like, why do stand-up comics not get offered like these, these, you know, why do they not get offered dramas? There's been very few that I can think of, and they were very good at it. But like uh, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, she did some of uh, some dramatic turns. She was great dramatic turns. And uh, uh, Robin Williams, he did very well. But the thing about Robin was, and also too, he's one of my one of my absolute favorites. But he was kind of criticized early on. I remember yeah. vividly that one of the primary um, film critics when he did. Um, uh, Good Morning Vietnam, and even with like I think Dead Poets Society, although he got rave reviews, there were initially there were people that were saying like, oh, he's just doing stand up comedy. He's not really acting, yeah. you know. And so, but he was a you know Robin was an you know an outstanding actor. You know, he could do he could do serious stuff very 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 well. Um, eventually, you know Eddie Murphy, you know he 
when he did Dream Girls, he got an Oscar nomination. But also um, Jim Carrey, very, very talented, you know, actor who didn't, I don't think he got his just due as a serious actor. You know, yeah, um, I don't I still don't think he has. And he's done some right. great stuff. I'm playing Andy Kaufman for Christ's sakes is right. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. It, yeah so um, yeah, you mentioned Robin Williams. I, a lot of people like to jump to him for his dramatic turns. Uh, you know, I've talked about how much I love him in Goodwill Hunting. And yeah, it's very good. Very good. I, I, I remember hearing a, a behind the scenes story. I forget from who maybe it was from him robin williams himself i don't know but obviously he is super add kind of just he he was he was all over the place but the supposedly someone said on set when he was doing comedies he was very focused and a little more tame because he may have been kind of just like keeping it all bottled up and saving it for the camera and supposedly like on goodwill hunting he was typical Robin Williams off the wall between takes. But then when they called action, he could just, he could just get it together. Um, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but that's just a story I heard. I never had, I never had the honor of meeting Robin Williams, but I did get to meet uh, Paul Mooney. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't look at it as like, you know, I don't look at my career as regrets. I look at, you know, things that didn't happen, right. As, you know, learning experiences, but, um, Paul Mooney gave a lot of comics like Robin Williams, you know, opportunities early on. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that that uh, Robin Williams was on the Richard Pryor show. It didn't last that long, but he he came out of that show out of the gates, you know, and just really became a superstar, you know, in Hollywood. But in the in the Robin in the in the Richard Pryor show, it was Robin Williams, Tim Reed, Sandra Bernhard, um, uh, a few other people that were on that show. Um, but uh, I, but actually, um, uh, Paul Mooney's son, uh, Daryl, he was in uh, Write It Black. So, yes. yeah. yeah, so he's in there. Um, well, let's uh, before I jump in on into Write It Black, I just always like to ask people who come on the show, uh, filmmakers. And I know you work behind and in front of the camera. Uh, and, you know, as a filmmaker myself, I always like to talk about who my heroes were. And I know you have your heroes of comedy, but like what made you want to produce what made you want to write and direct and and get in front of the camera as an actor? You know, for me, I always felt that I had um, a good comedic presence. I thought I'd be a great actor. I've come to find out that I'm probably nowhere near as good as I thought I was, but I still enjoy doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't do it with the standpoint of, Hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Denzel Washington, you know, so it's, it's not that, but, one of the things that for all the criticism that I may have received in life as a child, and I got a lot of it, everybody, well, not everybody, but the overwhelming majority of people that heard my stories, even as a kid, they liked them. Okay. So that the stories always seem to pique people's interest. Like I rarely heard, oh, that's a horrible story. So I got to the point where I wanted to produce my own projects and conceptually, the producing is fine, but I wish I was a better, um, I wish I was a better people person um, because uh, that seems to be the kind of the sticking point. But to answer the question, I kind of get drifted away, but to answer the question, <laughs> it's all good. Um, I, 
I liked a lot of TV shows. Like I liked, as I got older, I loved All in the Family. I thought the writing was great. I thought the writing on Taxi was great. Um, I thought the writing on, um, let's see, other shows. I thought the writing on Spin City was great. Um, trying to think of some other shows where it, it seemed like almost like the shows kind of uh, wrote, wrote themselves in a sense. So what I started doing was when I would write a movie or write a story, I would write out the characters and I would write their backgrounds and their personalities. And so yeah. then when I started writing, I knew exactly what that person would say because I knew what their personality was, you know? And so um, it wasn't necessarily one person or specific people, but I liked the body of work that I saw on, on a number of those television shows, like, like Taxi and um, uh, All in the Family. Because All in the Family produced like, six seven or eight direct or indirect um uh, uh spinoffs yeah. you know most people can't name them they but it was a whole slew of them so um th those are the things that influenced me and i when i would hear people say jokes that i would say or that i would write that 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 gave me even more confidence because i i got the joke you know and i even felt that in many ways i was better because i felt like man i could have rewritten i could have written that better you know mm -hmm. Like, like even when like uh, I was I kind of started watching Game of Thrones at the end. I that last season, I wrote a treatment for it. And I'm like, I could have fixed this. I could have made it even better, you know. And so I showed it to some people. They were like, man, that's great. You should have pitched it to him. But, you know. <laughs> so you're in the camp of people who hated that final season. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I think that, you know, did you, would you watch it? Were you a fan of the show? I loved the show, but I, so I, I love the show all. And so you get to the final season and like those first three episodes, I actually thought were pretty kick-ass. Yes. And, yes. <laughs> and then like, so then like it's the episode after the battle at, um, yes, absolutely. And I'm getting there and I'm just kind of, wow, you're really passionate about this. Um, but but no, I'm, I'm, just, agree, I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing with you no, because no, I, I know, saw it I the same way. I know, because like, but then all of a sudden, like, just like those last three episodes. They only did six episodes. I'm sitting there, and like, once it gets to the final part, and I know the show's coming to an end, the final episode, and Jon Snow. Spoiler alert for if you haven't seen the end of Game of Thrones, because I don't even really know what happens, but Jon Snow just kind of walks off into the woods there at the end, and I remember yeah. just having this moment going, "No, you can't." fucking roll the credits right here you can't do it and then like the credits rolled and i was like oh my god no one's gonna like this no one's gonna like it and i i, I give writers and, and showrunners the benefit of the doubt it's got to be hard to wrap up something after seven seasons that has a massive fan base you know i for, I'm i forgive people like i get it it's got to be hard but i just and i'm not even the biggest game of thrones fan but i just remember going like Fuck, they fucked this up. <laughs> yeah, I think I think at that with that episode three, it, it it they peaked there. Yeah. And then after that, it seemed like the rest of the show was anticlimactic. Yeah. So that's 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 what I think. But but to your point though, let's let me move this back to center and say this. Yeah, go ahead. You are absolutely right because even on the projects that I've done, I am still working on my third and fourth films. So um, as a director, uh, Write It Black was my second film, but it is true because 
you got you have actors who are doing their own thing they want to leave they have other projects they want to do and so there's a lot of things that you have to get done and i can tell you too i have no clue what it's like to run a production as big as game of thrones but even with just the small things that i have done um i have had to go through a learning process um and and it, i have heard people talk about these directors or showrunners who are not very nice people they're rude yeah. and they yell and they scream i am polite to a fault and tyler i'm going to say this to you and this is one of the things i wanted to speak on in doing your show it is very difficult to be a polite and respectful guy and try to be the showrunner for a film it is it is very challenging because when you're the nice guy the boundaries that people would normally have with you if you were the a-hole, they don't necessarily have those boundaries. So mm -hmm. the things that, that that people are thinking, when you're the nice guy, they say them. And 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 like you have, some, like I could say, I want to have a red truck drive to the street corner and then make a left. And then there will be somebody who's telling me, no, we should have a blue car that gets to the street and make a right. And it happens all the time. And then, yeah. like, so you say it, and then there's somebody else that agrees with that person. And you're like, no, 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 this is not a, a democracy, you know? Yeah. And so uh, it's 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 tough because you try to de-escalate and, and, and to, but I learned a lot, even with this last project that I'm going to have to do some reshoots on, but it's constant, you know? you have people that don't want to eat the food that you bought, you know, and, you know, you're trying to politely say, okay, well, this is in the budget. This is what we're eating. And, you know, you have that conversation. And so there's lots of stuff, even things that you've agreed to. You say, mm -hmm. well, we've agreed to this. We've agreed to one, two, three, four, and five. And then when they show up to the set, well, I don't think we should do number three. What? So, you know, you're constantly having to deal with that. So with Game of Thrones, to your point, I can only imagine you know, the, yeah. things that we're, the, the things that we're seeing as the final product, we don't necessarily know what took place as they were trying to put that together. I mean, how many times have like you I mean, I don't know about you, but I've watched movies before and I can't name anything off the top of my head, but I have sat there and gone, this is a bad movie, but I feel like there's a good movie in there and something happened in post-production. Like they cut a bunch of stuff out. I they, There's something that doesn't feel, I mean, you kind of feel it a lot the past couple of years, what's been coming out because of COVID and like, you can sense like productions just being under so much stress and whatnot. Um, but I, I love kind of hearing directors and I've had directors come on here before and been like, excuse me my mic just kind of fell um i've had directors or i've heard directors talking about like movies that you know get criticized a lot and they go like well that's also not my cut like somebody else went in and just like cut right everything so there's right. always like a lot of different reasons why maybe something goes south with a film or a tv show that isn't always the director or producer's fault so know. you know um i I was taught to be respectful and that's the yeah. way that I was raised. Um, if I were to come on your set and we have agreed to do one, two, three, four, and five, if I agreed to that and I read the script or whatever, then I'm on the set. That's what I would do. And I'm saying that I've seen a number of people that they purposely say, I'm going to do one, two, three, four, and five with no intent to do one, two, and three, four, and five. 
So um, uh, I took for granted that everybody was happy about being in the film. I remember when I got cast in the film, I was ecstatic and over the roof. And so I just assumed that that's the way everybody else would be. Right. Uh, I didn't I didn't think in terms of trying to renegotiate my contract as soon as I got on set, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I now, after having a few movies under my belt, I don't take things for granted in the same way that I used to. Like now, the next film that I do, I'm going to have to have a conversation with my cast and crew about who's in charge. I didn't think I would have to do that. I never I, I, I didn't think in those terms. But even when I have looked at film footage. And I don't mean this to be disrespectful to, you know, anybody that I've worked with, but I looked at film footage from one of my films and I could not believe that this was the actual footage. I assumed that the DP was getting good footage. Damn. When I got ready to edit my film, I had to pay quite a bit of money. There were microphones, there was equipment, there was people. Coloring was bad. And I mean, like, really bad. And... I had been told the whole time, no, 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 this is a good shot. It's a great shot. And so I didn't think to question it. I did it again. I did another film and I was looking at the footage and I wasn't getting the shots. That I thought, I'm not, okay, the next time I do this, I have to stop and make sure that I have the shot that I was asking for. And I didn't think I would have to do that. And so um, there was a lot of uh, things that I learned. I even... I try not to be the person that, uh, and I have a temper, but I try not to be the person that like goes off or whatnot. Well, I remember that one of the DPs uh, in one of my films, he wanted to shoot this shot and like, well, let me just see how it looks or whatever. And I went ahead and did that, even though I knew I wasn't going to use it. Instead of just putting my foot down and go, no, we're moving on to the next thing. I'm not going to use that. And so, you know, that it was, um, those are some things that I have learned about the process. So again, back to your Game of Thrones an analogy, you're absolutely right. I, I can imagine that there's stuff going on, you know, and you don't wind up always getting the shots that you want or things that happen. Yeah. Or they're just like, screw it. This is what we're doing. And I don't know. There was also, I guess that the George R. R. Martin was still writing books. So like the, the, the showrunners and writers were basically making up stuff. I don't know. I I, I don't know. It, it's yeah. over and done with. There's a spinoff now. I haven't, right. I haven't really watched this much of the spinoff yet. Um, yeah. It's okay. Um, and remember too, Tyler, that, you know, George's characters, they don't have different jobs. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Uh, but like, there's so many criticisms of like finales, like how many people hated the finale of the Sopranos when it came out. And I don't know if you know how to, if you watch the Sopranos at all. I, I, I was, I was a tepid uh, viewer, but uh, I, I don't think I heard that one. Tell me about it. Ooh. So I got to spoil the Sopranos, even though it happened 15 <laughs> years ago here on the air. No. So basically the Sopranos has this at the time people thought was like a, what the F ending in the final episode where all it really is is Tony goes to uh, out to eat and everybody shows up separately. Tony, um, Carmela, his wife and his two kids, they, everybody shows up by themselves. And there is kind of this inkling fear that Tony's going to get whacked, but you don't know where it's going to be coming from. And of course, with a show about a mob boss. Yeah. Maybe that's the ideal thing. Like he gets killed at the end and he goes in, he sits down, Tony's by himself. And the way that the scene paces is very unsettling, but nothing's really happening. You know, like 
there's just like it's making you anxious like you know people are coming in and like you, you're like oh that guy looks like he could be a hired hitman or something like and then right. like his wife comes right. in sits down with him and they're just and it just seems like this average night out to dinner with the sopranos and then like his kid shows up by himself and then like across the street his daughter's trying to parallel park and she sucks at it and but like so like even her parallel parking is like what the fuck is like, come on like, like what are you doing and throughout this whole scene don't stop believing by journey is playing and um i don't know like they all sit down at the table and then you hear the bell ringing for someone walking into the restaurant and it lands right the the shot lands on uh, james gandolfini with the with the lyric don't stop believing but it just says don't stop and then it cuts to black and then it's over you don't hear a gunshot you don't hear anything i'm sorry for anybody if i just spoiled the ending of the sopranos but <laughs> um okay i didn't know that a lot of people hated it and like honestly i i didn't see it when it happened my my I'm speaking to my speaking about my dad a lot and shows he turned me on to a lot here tonight today. Um, you know, he worshiped watching the Sopranos. He loved that show. And I can see why, because when I went back and watched it, I've watched it. I watched that show twice now, and I kind of want to go back for a third binge, but throughout that final season, like I, I knew, I knew how it ended. And I remember going, okay, like, yeah, the ending's not great, whatever. But, a friend of mine, and I know he listens to the show, so he knows who he's going to be. He's going to say, watch that final season one more time. Because leading up to it, there is a lot of talk about death, how you're going to die. Is it going to be this big ceremonious thing? Is it going to be, you know, like this epic, oh my God, my loved ones are around me. You know, a beautiful thing where you float up to the heavens. Or is it just going to be just like that? And it goes black and nothing happens and there is a there's a conversation between tony and his brother-in-law early on in the season about that about just like when you die everything just kind of goes black which is exactly what happens at the end of the show which is why i think tony soprano gets killed at the end ah yeah. okay yeah you know i i can tell you that um i can only imagine like i'm old enough to remember um as a child, I don't remember exactly what happened, but then later on, I, I heard it like, you know, like with uh, Farrah Fawcett, Charlie's Angels was a big television show at the okay. time. And then she had some contract issues with Aaron Spelling or the production company or whatever. And then the same thing happened a few years later with the Three's Company. Um, Suzanne Summers was uh, was was one of the co-stars on, on uh, Three's Company. And then she got into it with the production company and she left. I bring that up to say that now, you know, not only with negotiations, but then you have, you know, characters that, you know, that may get ill or pass away or no longer yeah. want to be on the show. Uh, you know, you may have ratings issues, not have enough money to produce the stuff that you want. There's a lot of things that happen. I can tell you in putting in all this money to to do my films and then to have somebody that comes aboard that could care less it's it's tough you know it, yeah. it it really can be challenging because in my mind i'm thinking that you're going to have people that want to support the project and the project is the most important but that's not really the way it is for a lot of people their agenda is is what's most important not your agenda even if you're trying to get the film done and so 
that is that that has been a very challenging thing. But I had to learn, though, like, oh, OK, so now I have to ensure that I find and cast people and I hire crew that are understanding of, you know, the 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 project, mm-hmm. you know, and putting it together. So uh, it, it was tough. Like, um, I remember there was an actor in one of my films. He he had not. You know, he I, I saw he had a kind of grumpy attitude. And I was like, hey, what's wrong, man? He's like, man, I haven't filmed all day. We've been sitting around. I, I haven't done this. And, you know, and I've just been sitting here. And and in my mind, I really wish what he had said was, hey, Jim, is there something I can do to help? OK. You know, I really wish that's what he had said. And so I try to be that person, you know, to, you know, come to the set and, and help out. But um it was a learning process to understand that that's going to be an issue. I I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. No, sorry. no, 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 no. It's it's not your fault. No, I think you know you never know who you're. I, I guess I like working with small crews. I don't know if you're working with like a big crew on your stuff. Um, I guess lately, I mean, I just just because it's kind of just me and like a few other people. With even though I haven't really made anything in a while, I always try to like. I feel like I need to work with people that I only know now and like I'm in a constant communication with um, when it comes to casting, like uh, <laughs> I might get some hate from actors tonight today, but at least I'm, I have an actor on the show right now. So, you know, whatever, but um, you never know who's going to like walk through the door during casting either. I'll never forget my very first film I ever made 10 years ago. Um we were casting a supporting role and we needed pretty much and pretty much the entire cast is like guys in their guys and girls in their twenties. And I just remember um, this guy coming in to read and it was for the older character guy in like his, you know, mid forties, early fifties. And he walks in and sits down and sees a bunch of kids there. And I just see it on his face. He goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he sits down and we're, we're all nice like i mean like we all sensed his vibe but i was being cool about it i was just like so here's the script for you know the character you know i gave him a little bit of a direction and um i could tell he didn't want to be there and he was a very and i'm not knocking anybody who's been in theater and in plays because i've had people on this show and you know they're all pretty you know everybody's been on the show has been in a play is pretty cool but this guy was like theater shakespearean trained actor and here he is he's, he's coming to audition for a movie about a bunch of potheads <laughs> and but my producing partner at the time made a valid point he was just like that was awful that was uncomfortable but he was a really good actor so i don't know maybe he's hard to work with maybe he's not our guy but maybe we should get to know him down the point down the road and maybe See if we can, you know, maybe have him come back for something more mature if we did anything in five years, which we didn't. I never heard from the guy again, but um, you never know you're going to get with people on set is what I'm kind yeah. of at. Or you yeah. should maybe ahead of time, but you never know what kind of flips are going to get switched. Well, you know, I've noticed, too, um, that's why uh, I've seen over time, you know, you see some of the same directors and actors work together. Yeah. You know, over and over. Cause they're just comfortable with each other. I think that's what it is. Yeah. So, um, yeah. well let's, I hope, I hope everything we just said, like didn't happen on right at black, but <laughs> let's jump into the movie. Like I, I'm 
so excited to to see this at some point. This just seems like it really hit a chord with me. Um, just from what you sent me, footage wise. Uh, how did this thing? What's the light bulb moment with creating this thing for you? I I actually had I I have some projects that I feel that are gonna take a bigger budget, and then this was supposed to be kind of one of those introduce myself mm-hmm. as a director type films. And I thought the story would be pretty easy to shoot. Now, I'm I don't I'm not a DP, but I'm getting to the point where, you know, I, I bought like I have like six cameras now, you know, that I bought. And so I have to uh, figure out how to start using these things. And uh, but I thought since most of the film was going to be us sitting at a table and I thought, well, you know, I could get all those perspectives out. And then I, I thought, OK, write it black, you know, uh, film about diversity. We can get it done. We can get it shot pretty easily. But my ignorance um, of how a, a, a DP would have to film it, I had to work through that because I thought the shots would be easier to get. And um, but so I, I I thought, well, I can knock this out and, you know, and I'll have this and I'll add, you know, some friends. Everybody that I initially hired initially, they were all people that I had worked with before. Everybody was somebody I'd been in a film with before, except for my college professor who, you know, we, I'd been in his theater plays, but, you know, we hadn't been in films together, but. You've been so, in a film with a Char, is it Charmel or Charnel? I forget. Oh, oh okay. No, Charmel. That, that's Booker T's wife, Charmel Huffman. I know. I wanted to ask you about that. You got Booker T's wife in your movie. And, and, you know, and the thing is, is that I am absolutely stunned that she has not been in more stuff because she is as good an actress as I have ever seen anywhere. She yeah. knew her lines. And I didn't even sit down and talk with everybody. I, I did write a character summary, you know, personality summary for each of the characters. So they all had that. But she got all the jokes without, we because we had we didn't do any rehearsal. Yeah. Uh, um, we just stepped right into it. But she knew all her lines, knew mine. And I had been so busy getting everything together that I hadn't even remember memorized my lines, you know, as well as I should have. So, um, but yeah, she was great. No, I had not. Mike Messier actually recommended her. Interesting. Yeah, so, I, I, I mean, like I said, I don't know Mike, but I know he's like in tight with a lot of wrestlers and stuff. So right, right, he is. And so he recommended her. But yeah, you know, I'm glad you pointed that out because she was the only character. Uh, like Paul Mooney was supposed to play Punchline, mm-hmm. you know, and then that that wound up, you know, Paul uh, started uh, getting a. Uh, um, he started having some some health issues, so yeah. that didn't pan out. But um, I had work, um, and and I hadn't worked with Mike either. But everybody else, like one of the the guy that was supposed to play Bucket the janitor, um, his name is Keith Bolden. Now he was a college classmate of mine. But Keith, did you did you watch any of the Black Lightning series on CW? Yeah. Yeah, here and there. I, I think I've only I'm probably behind like a season or two, but yeah, okay. I, I, very well, that was Keith, a very strong first season. I loved it. Okay, Keith played his dad. He played okay uh, Black Lightning's dad. Okay, cool. So he was a, a college classmate of mine, and he was supposed to be in it, but he wound up um, dropping out. The uh, Mary Legault, she played Becky in the film. Um, her dad is Lance Legault, and Lance Legault uh, played one of the um, 
uh, one of the colonels that was chasing down the A-team in the early seasons. Okay. Uh, and he was good friends with with um, with uh, Elvis Presley and played like his body double in one of the, I think the Kissing Cousins movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. But Mary and I were in a film several years ago called, called Rift. It was a, um, a horror film. So I asked her to be in this with me. And um, uh, a couple of actors dropped out like almost like the day before. So one, I, I was still, I was going, I was getting my PhD at the University of North Texas. I contacted the drama department to find an actress and she, this actress replaced somebody who had just dropped out and like she jumped in like the day before. So um, trying to think, did I miss anybody? And uh, Adam, Adam uh, Richmond, he was in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he's, he does stand up. And uh, Jamie, okay, now Jamie Nieto, um, Jamie and I kind of got like, we weren't like super, super close but like we 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 kind of like got along years ago we were doing like a show where um it was a pilot for um a variety comedy show or whatever it didn't get picked up or anything but we met back then and he was always a good guy i didn't know much about him but jamie's been at me to two olympics he was a um a high jumper and his wife i think her, uh, she's in the film too. Uh, Siobhan, they've gotten married and they have two kids now, two young kids about your baby's age. And um, uh, I asked him to be in the project. And so then he said, yeah, well, my wife is going to have to come with me. And I hadn't, I didn't, I hadn't realized it had been so long since I saw Jamie, but Jamie wound up getting paralyzed. And so he was, he was working as a track coach at a college and was trying to do a backflip for his, uh, his, uh, his, his athletes and uh he broke his neck and he he's recovered to the point where he can walk again oh uh, that's good yeah but um i i didn't know like he was on nbc and espn and uh, i you know kind of broke my heart because you know you you know you, you text back and forth over the years and you email and sometimes you just don't realize it's been that long yeah since you had that conversation well jamie is an incredible actor as a matter of fact he um jamie um was after after he did my show he was on the tv show with what's the the lady who was in uh, girls 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 don't cry uh the she won two oscars for oh with uh hillary swank hillary swank yeah she was in a tv show where she was an astronaut oh that was and like so, on netflix right i think okay and so jamie yeah. was in that and now he's on one of the power shows he's he's got a recurring role on power okay cool yeah but yeah, so that's, you know, uh, that was it. And we we had we really had a great, great time. And um, there were, you know, I, I would say that one was like a 95 percent great time. There was a couple of hiccups, but I just assumed that. My other films would be like that. Now, that was a um, that was a union film. Okay. And even though I paid a lot more money doing a union film, when I did my two non-union films after that, I saw the difference the difference in the level of actors was totally yeah. different. It was totally different. I paid a lot more money the first first time, but those guys in the union film, they came far more prepared and ready to work. Yeah. So that's... No, you can that's definitely it. see it, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of satire in this movie, I feel, and what, you know, a lot of messages you're trying to convey. Uh, talk to me about what you're trying to, you know... 
talk to me about the messages and tones and themes you're trying to bring up to the surface on this uh, on this uh, comedy. Well, you know, in in real life and and with the movie as well, you're there are things that okay you want to sell a product and you think it's a good product and somebody's coming to you and they say, okay, Hey, I want you to sell this product. But now, you know, though, that the market and where you're selling, they may not like the product, right? It could be something that works fine, but it may just not have the, it may not be popular enough to sell. What I have learned in Hollywood and, and I'm using Hollywood as a synonym for the film industry um, is that there are uh, studios, production companies, so to speak, networks. Um, they may want to show something, but they may not be able to sell it. And it's unfortunate because if you say that, then you're considered you you get you get one of the one of the uh, the ism terms. You know that you know the, you're you're some type of ism or some type of ist if you say this. So, but it's true in trying to cast for certain films and certain projects I've done, uh, I've realized that like there are certain people that won't take the role. And I was wondering like, why is nobody, you know, taking this role? You know, I sent out sides and, and nobody was doing it. Oh, okay. So there are things that we don't want to talk about with racism. There's things that we don't want to talk about with sexism. There's things that we don't want to talk about with the trans community um that we are in a society where some of these things although there are people who want them put out there who want them who want them done the people who want to make money are saying hey we're not going to make money off of it there was a film that just came out the one with the uh there was a, a gay comedy that just came out just recently and it was really really popular uh, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but it didn't do well at the box office. And so there's been conversations about, well, you know, the United States public just wasn't ready for it. And um, how do you deal with these things, honestly, without offending anybody? You know, yeah. how do you? And so with my film, it's like some of these ideas. Yeah, they're great. But, you know, you can just see that there are certain people that don't want like I'll, I'll give a, a, a semi spoiler. I start off my character, Maddie, uh, who has come from the sports department. He's talking about this show that he wants to do. And it's kind of like a, um, a play on the, the, the Cosby show. And this story, he's talking about an African-American family. There's a father. He's got four sons, one daughter. And so you have a character that's trans. You have a character that's militant. You have a character that is very fem a feminist. You have uh, one that's a flower girl and you have one who's gay and you have a guy who's like very um, super conservative. Mm -hmm. So those are the four, the, 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 the six main writers or whatever, um, including myself uh, as the, the, the head writer. And he tells a story about a black family that has, you know, four sons and, and a daughter. Well, all of them put their spin on the character. So when it finally gets to the last guy, Mitch, who's gay, the story is about um, a gay guy who has four robot daughters who are all white and they hi they've hired a, 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 black, um, a black butler to teach them jive. So now my character goes and he explains to the, the, his bosses like, hey, 
I tried to pitch this story and this is what it got turned into. So then one of the characters goes, oh, wow, a, 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 a gay white guy with four robot, with, with four robot, with four ro white robot daughters with a gay butler who teaches the, 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 the robot daughters jive. He goes, oh, that's, that's a great show. And so it's kind of, um, you know, kind of showing like, well, why aren't there, there why isn't there more diversity? Because you have this balance of, yeah, you know, we want to see good stuff, but is it going to sell? So, you know, that's just the reality of what we're dealing with in our society. Do you think that um, studios, networks uh, try, especially these days, uh, do you think they try to now just check a box with having a trans character, having an Asian kid. Do you, do you think there's like, do you think they're just doing it so that, you know, nothing bad happens to them and they can protect their brand? Or do you think there's actually, cause I mean, well, I think there is actually people out there that purposely are making films to show a culture or a side of the world that we may not know a lot about, but then there's like, you know, your major networks that it might feel like it's checking a box. Do you think there's a lot of that out there? I think so. And I think that it's that's just and I also think that's in our society as a whole. I don't think it's just Hollywood. I think it's also yeah. corporate America. Oh, um, you know, there, there's there's box checking. Um, I don't know what the answer to that. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, I remember that some people were upset with um, uh, Ridley Scott when he made the comment a few years ago and about, you know, and I've, and I've kind of been critical of, of, uh, of Ridley, you know, I mean, I'm saying that as a, as a, as a nobody filmmaker, but I've noticed how like in some of his films, like I can kind of see that, that mindset. Um, I think there is a lot of box checking and I'll give you, I'll give you an example too, though, but I think that in the United States and we have a history of how we've done things in this country. We have a history of what's, we have a history of what we consider attractive. You know, we, we, we know what it is, you know, when we, you know, and so we, we know what we consider, you know, masculine and, and brave and, and, and all these, these popular things, you know, um, did you see the movie Gladiator? Of course. Okay. I'm going to give you an example here. And I've said this over the years and people look at me like I'm crazy. Okay. I'll try not um, to. All right. In the in the seminal uh, gladiator fight where they had the scene with the chariots. Yeah. It's like the most famous fight in the, in, the, in the film. Okay. Now, there were three black women on the backs of the chariots, or maybe four, at least three. Okay. They were the ones that were shooting the arch. The, the, they were the archers on the back of those. Okay. Now. If you watch the film at the beginning, it tells you what time period that they are depicting there. It's 180 AD. Okay. Right? Okay. The scene in which uh Maximus, Russell Crowe's character, is supposed to be um is supposed to be uh Hannibal, that was a few hundred years before, right? So they're recreating an event in where Hannibal is defeated, okay, mm -hmm. by Scipio. Okay, but they have three or four black women on the backs of these chariots. 
Now, if you watch the movie, there's almost no black people at all depicted in the movie other than a few gladiators. Yeah. Primarily Damon Hyansu, who plays Juba, who's one of the, the lead, the central characters. Yeah. So why would Ridley Scott use these black women on those chariots? Now, there's one scene, if you watch the scene again, one of them is 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 emaciated by uh being run over by a chariot. Russell Crowe cuts the head off of one of them. And I have said for years, and people look at me like I'm crazy. Why would they use black women for those scenes? And nobody said a word. Now, I can't think of any movie prior to that and where you see men and women in equal combat in a situation like that. I've never seen it. Not before Gladiator, which came out like in 2000, 2001. So I brought this up. Why would he do that? And I've heard people give me these nonsensical comments like, well, maybe they were Amazons and just stuff that doesn't make sense. And I was like, well, you know, they were recreating Hannibal's battle. So did Scipio have, you know, did Scipio have women in his army when he attacked Hannibal? Because that's what they're showing in this, in this fight. Mm -hmm. So anyway, my point is, I reason that the reason why Ridley Scott did this is because he knew based on his experience in Hollywood, nobody would question it. If he had put some attractive white women on the back of those chariots, believe me, it would have been noticed. If that had been four blonde women on yeah. the back of that chariot and one gets eviscerated by a chariot with this, with this spiked wheel and Russell Crowe goes and chops off the head of one of them, we would have heard about it. I bring this scene up and people tell me, oh, I, I, I don't even, I didn't even realize that. I didn't realize those were black women. I didn't realize it either, but I don't think you're crazy. I'll just so, say that. And so, and so but anyway, the point is, is that in, in, in our film industry, there are certain things that people will accept, like interracial relationships. They're more common now than they were on TV. So we're not, as, <gasps> you know, yeah. they're not as show stopping as they were. But now if you if you if you're talking about like, you know, gay or trans, you know, we're, we're, we're moving a bit, you know, further with with some of the with, you know, showing, you know, gay couples, you know, being intimate on scenes. But like, you know, the, 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 the trans relationships, that's still one like, OK, we're having to deal with a, you know, with diversity and is the diversity going to make us money? So that's just the reality of what we have to deal with. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Okay. I don't know what else I have to ask about right at black, but I, I really like, I, I like, I really look forward to seeing this. Cause I, it's just, I feel like you have a topic in it that has been floating around in my head a lot because as a filmmaker myself, I've, I've always, maybe it's just because of how I grew up. I grew up around a lot of different kinds of people. I mean, I'm a millennial. So like I've always been one to want to see diversity on screen. Um, and I think it's obviously a big topic that is being worked with in Hollywood. So I think it's cool to have something with a lot of commentary uh, on it. That's out and about making the festival circuit. Uh, like you said, so this is, floating around or you're waiting to hear yeah, about I, festivals? I have submitted it to Sundance. I've submitted it to um, Riverdance. Um, I think um, I think 
I think Toronto and Cons, maybe I think they just finished a few weeks ago or a couple months ago. So I don't know if they're open yet, but I'm trying to submit it to um, as many of the premier ones as I can. And I don't know if I'm going to get in, but if not, then I'll, I'll look at it at that point, trying to, you know, maybe put it on um, Amazon or, you know, Tubi or some of the others and, and, and get it out there so that it can be seen. Um, I'm actually trying to find a, a decent company that will help me make some CDs. I mean, I'm getting all these um, or DVDs, I should say. Um, and I'm getting all these um, uh, outrageous prices. So if you know anybody that makes DVDs, let me know. Um, shoot me a message on Messenger. No, uh, I don't. So if you do find somebody, you let me know. Because like, yeah. I've had to make so many cheap things in the past and whatnot. Yeah. And it, but it, yeah, it, it was a great it was a great project. Um, I really enjoyed it. I learned a great deal. And I'm not going to give up because I really enjoy doing it. Um, I, I had a film afterwards. I was doing I'm doing a film called uh, There Is No Sanctuary. It got interrupted. It's a zombie film. It got interrupted by the pandemic. And then I was working on another film called um, In Like Flynn, um, which I'm going to have to do some major, major rework on that. But the learning lesson that um, that I went through, it was, you know, it, it, it was tough, but it was, um, you know, it was incredible. And as far as Write It Black, you know, um, I want to say thank you for letting me, you know, come on here and, and talk about it. Uh, it stars... Um, uh, Dean Edwards, who was on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, Charmel Huffman, you know, she's uh, she just she she uh, made the WWE uh, um, a WWF Hall of Fame this year. That's right. You know, she, and, I wanted to I wanted to say this before no, while you were going with your casting. Go ahead. I, the only reason why I brought her up is because I mean, I've I've watched wrestling my whole life and like not like I haven't not I take time off when like it's not really. Yeah, I got my you. needs. But I, I jumped back in when Booker T became King Booker. And so she was like the little um Queen Charmel. Queen Charmel. Yeah, yeah. She was she was the she was the sidekick or whatever, whatever the hell they call it. I don't know. Um and I I think I got like I'm behind me here some DVDs of like WrestleMania, whatever. And I think it was like WrestleMania like 22. And it's like King Booker versus the character was the boogeyman or something. And I I had not really watched any wrestling, but I did some blind buys of some DVDs. And so I was like, Booker T's King Booker now. Okay, whatever. And the bit they had her do with this boogeyman character where he just like eats worms. And she like, I guess, gets some worms slapped in her face at WrestleMania and has like the most ultimate scream as she runs away. And I was like, she needs to do movies. And it's... And this was like 10, 15 years ago when I saw it. Like I was like, she's pretty good, man. So it's kind of cool that she popped up on your cast casting list for this. So yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's uh it's it's a good. I I um I I I hope that uh it gets some uh good reviews and um I really enjoyed doing it and um I look forward to um you know moving on to my other projects. And if there's anything that I can ever do to help you, just you know, feel free to reach out and let me know. Oh hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Well, um well, cool, man. Thank you for coming by. This was an awesome conversation. Uh, you got a lot of awesome stuff going on. Uh, I, I also just want to say, like, I got a lot of nostalgia from like 70s and 80s TV that I don't <laughs> really get on this show a lot because I feel like I, I watched a lot of Nick at Night as a kid. And I don't think the generations coming up get to enjoy stuff like that anymore. So 
Uh, I'd have to have you back on and we can maybe talk about like best TV shows from that era or something. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah anytime. Man. I feel anytime. like you, you just kind of, I just got a vibe. You struck me as like, you have a lot of knowledge of that era. Yeah. And, and back in those days, you know, I, I you know, you're millennial, but you know, I, I, you know, now we have a million channels. Yeah, I know. You know, and so you can actually like now you can have a, a popular show that can do an entire five or six year run. You've never had a chance to watch it yeah. and it's gone off the air. Back in, you know, years and years ago, there were so few channels that, you know, the popular show, you know, caught more eyes back then in the, yeah. in the sense that there was less, they had less competition, you know, than they yeah. do now. Yeah, no, no. The, they say like right now is the golden age of television. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. There's something about that era from like years back. But yeah, uh, anywho. And that, and that word television is slowly changing as well because our medium is actually changing. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's it, it's pretty pretty wild right now. Um, but anywho, this is actually real quick. Um, where can we, if we want to, you know, find you, or if somebody else wants has a podcast, wants to have you come on or something? Like, where can we find you on the uh, internet if anybody was looking for you? Uh, they can e- they can you know go to imdb.com and they can email me there. I'm on Facebook. Um, yeah, uh, I'm pretty easy to find. So if um, if somebody wants to help me promote the film, yeah, please feel free to reach out. Cool, man. Uh, well, good luck. Uh, I know this thing will pop up somewhere on the festivals or somewhere on streaming, and I I, I look forward to it. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much, Tyler. All right. All right. As for all of you, you know the routine. Leave a rating, leave a review for The Basement so it doesn't go into the abyss of everybody who has a podcast. See you next week.